Welcome to day 41 of Journey Through Scripture. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 6, verse 13 through the end of chapter 8, and then Matthew 26, 47 through 68. Okay, so the final part of Exodus 6 gives Moses and Aaron's genealogy. Uh, so we're familiar with the tribal breakdown of the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, um, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, uh, Benjamin, and then Joseph split into the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. So those are the tribes. Under tribes in, um, in the Israelite social order are clans. So each of those, those houses have clans in them. And um, here we're given uh, the, some of the some of the clans of Reuben, some of the clans of Simeon, but then Levi we see broken down into the clans there. So the son, so Levi is a tribe, and within Levi there are the clans of Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Gershon is not to be confused with Mer- Moses's son Gershom with an M. Um, and uh, here we see that uh, Moses and Aaron come from the Levitical clan of Kohath. Also here we see for the first time Aaron's sons who are going to become important in the storyline uh, because Aaron is the, uh, the one to whom the priesthood will be entrusted. And his sons are Nadav, Avihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Okay, so those are names that we will encounter again. All right, chapter 7. Uh, here we have Moses and Aaron really starting to go before Pharaoh, and the plagues begin to unfold. Um, and God tells Moses this scenario that we I already this, um, mentioned briefly yesterday, where uh, the, the order that God kind of sets things up in is he says, I've made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. He will be your mouthpiece. And you're going to command Pharaoh to let my people go into the wilderness to worship me, but uh, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And he is not, in fact, going to let the people go. And I am going to multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. So, the idea of the Pharaoh not listening is kind of baked into the cake. Uh, Moses is told to expect this. This is what's going to happen. And so um, here we have this big set of ideas, right, where uh, the objective is to bring my people out of Egypt, to deliver them from slavery, yes, and to fulfill my covenant with Abraham, um, Isaac, and, and Jacob. But there's another dimension to this now that's revealed, and uh, that is, uh, we see that in verse 5 here, and that is that the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring them, bring out the people of Israel from among them. And we shouldn't forget that aspect of the Exodus, this idea that God is going to demonstrate who he is by subduing the most powerful nation in the world. Um, And that is going to unfold because of the stubbornness of Pharaoh's heart, 
um, and because of his unwillingness to let the Israelites go. So that is one of God's objectives. God's objectives is, objective is not only to bring the people into the promised land, but it's to, uh, the way it's put elsewhere, get glory over Pharaoh, uh, to show that this, this man who believes himself to be a god is, in fact, nothing. And, um, and, and so part of this, it, it's not as if the plagues are like an afterthought, a, a plan B, but they are part of God demonstrate the, uh, executing judgment on the idols of Egypt and, and uh, their idolatrous worship. There is, in a sense, a missional aspect of the Exodus that's going to happen, the idea of making known who God is to the nations. It can be viewed as a somewhat of a rebuke of what Pharaoh said when Moses first went before him, right? Who is Yahweh? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let the people go. Why should I listen to your God? And if this is an answer to that. Now, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart does play a role in this. And, of course, the thing that kind of sticks to us is, well, how is this fair um, that God is is making Pharaoh recalcitrant, and he's making him resistant to Moses and 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 what Aaron are saying. And I th think that we have to be a little bit careful here, because it's not as if Pharaoh um, is just this blank slate, just this morally innocent guy who would otherwise be completely on board with God God's plan mediated to him through. Moses and Aaron. No, this is a man who has enslaved an entire um, ethnic group within his country. This is um, a man who is part of a dynasty that has taken place in infanticide, in, in attempting to curve the population of his slaves. Uh, he, the, this, this is a regime that we, we don't know how long this policy went on for, uh, but that 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 killed infants uh, in order to what? In order to make sure that their slaves were still subdued. This is a man who believes he is an incarnation of the god Horus on Earth, and that no one can challenge him. Uh, this is not a morally neutral guy, um, and the the question of the hardening of his heart. Uh, it kind of goes back and forth, right? Because it doesn't always say it the same way. Sometimes God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Sometimes Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and it's not clear, you know, who or what did it. But what we do see is God using this whole situation, this whole scenario, in order to uh, to make his name known in a way in which it has not been known uh previously throughout human history, to do something striking, to do something new. And indeed, the Exodus will be the great saving work of God in the Old Testament. Uh, in, in terms of the fairness to Pharaoh regarding the hardening of his heart, uh, I kind of leave that to God. Uh, God judges us for the sin that we are responsible for. Uh, and if there is a, a hardening of his heart that he's that makes him... It, not responsible, then okay, but there's plenty that Pharaoh has done that he is morally responsible for.
Um, and so we don't have an insight into how God will judge Pharaoh or, uh, or what specific uh, instances of hardening uh, are on him, which ones God caused in order to uh, execute this broader plan of uh, getting glory over the Egyptians, uh, demonstrating their gods to be nothing, bringing his people out, showing that he is the one true God, all of that stuff that is accomplished through this hardening, okay? We, we don't have insight into the, into the way in which Pharaoh will or won't be judged for each and every one of those instances. What we know is that uh, this is what the scripture says about the process, and uh, sometimes God steps in and hardens his heart. And that's all we know. It doesn't say God hardens his heart and then sends him to hell solely for something that he made him do. No, there's a lot more pieces to this puzzle. So um, I don't think it's our job to try to untangle the mystery there of God's sovereign hand over Pharaoh um, and and Pharaoh's free will and his moral responsibility. There's plenty of that in all of this. Like all of those things are present. Um, the other aspect of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, though, that we sometimes miss because we get hung up on the on the questions of God's justice and all that, um, is the fact that uh, not only is God demonstrating his power over nature in the plagues, not only is he, um, is he responding to uh, what the Egyptians thought that their gods could do, and saying, no, I'm the one who's in control of it. Not only those things, but Pharaoh's very heart is shown to be putty in the hand of God. God is completely sovereign, even over what is going on in the heart of the king of the world. Okay, so we see the first plagues start to play out now. Okay, the first one is the, uh, the plague of turning the Nile into blood. Um, now, there's a couple important things that repeat themselves in uh, several of the plagues, and we start to see these, and, and they all um, uh, contribute to a fuller understanding of exactly what's going on here. And so the first thing I want to point out is that there is an announcement in advance of what will happen. So it isn't as if uh, Pharaoh just says, I'm not letting the people go. And then they're like, okay, surprise, this is going to happen. No, he comes and he tells them what is going to happen. You see this happen in the plague of frogs. Um, you don't see it happen in the plague of gnats. You see it happen in the fourth plague, uh, flies. Um, you see it in the fifth plague, livestock. You see it in the seventh, hail. Um, these announcements, uh, the, the eighth plague, locusts. Um, and then you see it in the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. And so it's it's not as if these things are being sprung on an unsuspecting pharaoh. No, these are things that he knows are going to happen, and he still chooses to resist. He still chooses to resist the, the, the god of, of the Hebrews. Um, so... Uh, th what they do is they, Aaron stretches out his staff over the Nile, it turns into blood, and uh, Pharaoh's magicians are summoned, and they are able to replicate this. We don't know how they did it. Um, is this some kind of illusion they're doing, or are they tapped into some kind of weird, dark spiritual power? 
Uh, we're not told. All, we're say, all we say is that they are, we see is that they were able to replicate this. Um, uh, similarly, with the second plague, um, the, the, the plague of frogs, um, there's an announcement given that this is going to happen, um, and the, the, Aaron stretches out his, sta his staff, and frogs come all over the land, and then the magicians of Egypt are able to replicate it. Um, Pharaoh acknowledges that this is coming from the God of the Hebrews, and he even asks Moses to plead with him to take them from him. He tells Moses, okay, I, I, I learned my lesson. I'll let them go. And Moses is like, all right, well, tell me when. And he's like, all right, we'll, we'll do it tomorrow. And sometime in that time frame, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And uh, notice it's this is not uh, God hardening. This is an instance of Pharaoh hardening his own. And uh, the people are not released. So then the, the third plague, the third plague comes with no announcement. Um, and the 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 dust in Egypt, it's the way it describes it is is turned into gnats, and the gnats come over the land. By the way, um, we'll often hear that uh, the plagues each correspond to different deities in Egypt, to different gods. And uh, certainly some of them do sync up. like you know the, there there is uh, an Egyptian deity who is often portrayed as a frog, for example. But the gnats one <laughs> makes it a little bit is doesn't fit as nicely into that category, and so the idea that each of the plagues and and there are others like this as well, where it's very ambiguous if if they are trying to counter if each plague is directed against a specific Egyptian deity, it's with some of them it's kind of easy to to figure out which one it is. With others, it's quite a stretch, and the plague of gnats is a prime example. Of this, um, but here, however, unlike the first and the second plagues, the magicians are not able to uh, replicate this, and uh, they tell Pharaoh that this is the finger of of a god that that is doing this. Um, fourth plague comes. This is the plague of flies. This one is announced in advance. And here you find another interesting um, thing that is repeated in several of the plagues, and that is the separation between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. Um, it do, it we're specifically told in verse in verse twenty two in the announcement on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. And then, sure enough, when the plague happens, um, it's the the people of of Israel, the, the Hebrews, are exempted from this. Uh, Pharaoh, to this, has him, uh, calls in Moses and is like, all right, I can't stand it anymore. I guess I learned my lesson again. Go and sacrifice, uh, but but do it in the land of Egypt. Stay within the land. And Moses is like, no can do. Remember, our sacrifices are an abomination to you. Um, so Pharaoh's like, all right, go into the wilderness, then that's fine. And Moses prays, and the flies subside, and once that trial is over, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Um, it's, it's interesting that this kind of, we can kind of relate to Pharaoh in some sense, right? When you know God wants you to do something, but you really don't want to do it, and sometimes he'll bring hardship into our lives to kind of get us to the point where we're willing to 
um, to come to our senses when we're willing to to do what the Lord wants us to do. Um, and in the midst of trial, we 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 cry out, uh, making all kinds of holy promises. But then when the trial is over, we kind of forget God and we forget the way we cried out to him in the midst of our suffering and our difficulties. Okay, so that's about it for Exodus today. Let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 26. We're looking at verses 47 through 68. So um, Jesus has just prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and has seems to have full awareness of what's going to happen to him, has asked the Father to take this cup from him. Nevertheless, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Um, which should be the attitude of all our prayers. And then he told his three disciples who were with him, Peter, James, and John, look, my betrayer is at hand. And so, and as he's saying that, Judas approaches uh, with a, a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Notice they're, they're being, Jesus is being arrested not by the Roman authorities, but by the Jewish authorities who are going to try to bring him in and find a charge to lay against him. We're told that Judas uh, had given the the men that he came with a sign. He'd say, the one that I kiss is the man. Because remember, these guys probably don't really know what Jesus looks like, and he's the one who's going to be able to point him out. And very fittingly, he gives him a kiss, this idea that that he gives them this Judas kiss, it's come to be known, right? Where um, he, he, he makes this gesture of extreme love and affection uh, in the very act of betraying him. And that, 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 that act of affection is an act of betrayal. Um, and Jesus' respond response to him, I just think, is extraordinary. Friend, do what you came to do. Jesus still calls him friend. And so they seize him, and uh, one of those who are with Jesus, it tells us, um, takes out, whips out a sword and strikes the servant of the high priest and cuts off his ear. Um, several of the Gospels elaborate on this. One of them names the servant of the, the high priest. Matthew just tells us that that happened and that Jesus rebuked him. Uh, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Uh, the one who does this, by the way, is is Peter, we, we learn elsewhere. Um, do you not think that I can, can, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it should, that it must be so? So Jesus fully in control of the situation. Um, he is not going somewhere against against his will. He is in complete submission to the Father's will, and he's allowing this to happen to him. In the Gospel of John, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And uh, then Jesus addresses those who came out against him. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then the disciples left him and fled. Um, something that we saw yesterday was uh, was 
part of the reference to, uh, that Jesus made to Zechariah. Uh, notice here that twice Jesus says, expresses this concern that the scriptures will be fulfilled. Here we have it on the lips of Jesus, because Matthew has told us time and time again things that fulfilled the scriptures that happened in the life of Jesus, and we've looked into what that means. This obviously reinforces the high view that Jesus has of the Hebrew scriptures, that these are these are things that will come to pass. These are things that will be fulfilled, right? These aren't just people speculating about God. There is a there is a forward-moving direction that the scriptures have, this idea that the, the hand of God is making things unfold according to his plan that is revealed in the sacred writings. So Jesus is 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 fully committed to that view um in to the, to the extent in which he that's what he gives as his reason for submission here that these the word of god would would be fulfilled um so it's just interesting how Jesus's speech here ties into the way in which Matthew has been speaking all along now Jesus is before Caiaphas the high priest now let me just say a little bit about what's going on here uh, we know that their goal is to put Jesus to death, to have him put to death. And certainly there are instances of um, Jewish people in this time uh, meeting out mob violence against people. Uh, this The attempts had been made on Jesus's life already at this point. We see it with the stoning of Stephen. Uh, we see it with violence against the Apostle Paul. Those examples are all from the book of Acts. Um, and so certainly that was a possibility. But that might not be the way to go for them, because they've got crowds and crowds of people who apparently adore Jesus, and are they going to be the ones that they stir up to to stone him or to throw him off a cliff or something? No, what they want is the Roman... Uh, is, is for the Roman authorities to, to condemn Jesus. And the Roman authorities are not going to condemn Jesus because he was violating their traditions regarding the Sabbath or violating their traditions regarding cleanliness or anything like that. No, what they need is something that Rome will consider a capital crime. So interestingly, um, you know, the, 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 the Jewish establishment wants Jesus dead for religious reasons, but they need to find at least a quasi-political reason to have him crucified by the Romans. Um, so, uh, so that's why they're they're leading him before the the high the high priest first. They've got to figure out. Okay, we've got him now. How are we going to make get get Pontius Pilate to 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 see this thing through? How are we going to convince him to put this man to death? Um, and as he's before the high priest, Peter, we're told, is following. Uh, he's, he's, he's fled in fear, but he wants to know what's going to happen to Jesus. And ho- so he stands um, a distance away in a little bit of foreshadowing of what's going to happen with him. Um, but the chief priests are seeking, notice, false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So they're, they're seeking to break one of the primary commandments of God, one of the Ten Commandments of God. They're looking for false testimony, and uh, they're not able to find somebody who would be useful enough to go 
before Pilate and accuse him of something that would be worthy of death. Um, and uh, finally, they find two who claim that he said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the desecration of a temple, there you have a capital offense. So that's usable. Now, an interesting thing about this is that Matthew nowhere records Jesus saying this. Um, neither do Mark or Luke. This is actually found in the Gospel of John, which is the most different of all four of the Gospels. So it's kind of interesting because here you have people recalling something that Jesus said that Matthew didn't record, but another Gospel records him actually saying it. Uh, so you have this interesting kind of correspondence between the Gospels, both attesting to uh, something that Jesus said um, and doing so in a very uncontrived way, right? It's not as if Matthew, writing much earlier than John, um, was like, all right, when you write your gospel, John, make sure you tell him about how Jesus did this. No, it's just this kind of, uh, I guess, somewhat of a happy coincidence that they both mention this, this, this thing, but in different ways, and it lends itself to the historical credibility of the gospel narratives. Um, and um, so, at any rate, when these guys come forward and they say, you know, we heard Jesus say this, the high priest wants him to answer, but Jesus just is silent before him. And finally, he says, I adjure you by the living God, tell, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And again, what are they asking him? Are they asking, do you think that you're a deity, Jesus? No. They're saying, are, do you think that you are our king? Okay. Because the, the claim to be a deity, <laughs> interestingly, is probably not going to be as problematic in the eyes of Pontius Pilate as the claim to be a king. Because there are those who, the, the, Roman, the, the Roman Empire is, is very liberal with their acceptance of foreign deities and of a variety of religious beliefs, right? It's not this homogenous um, religion that just exists everywhere in the empire. No, people can believe their own things. There's a good amount of what we would call religious freedom in the Roman Empire. Um, what they're asking is, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And remember, the Son of God is, um, it does have connotations of deity clearly in the New Testament, but it also has connotations of kingship. And that's kind of like first and foremost what that um, what that expression would have meant to Jewish ears, especially at the time period that we're talking about now. Um, and Jesus answers him, you have said so. Okay, this is this is kind of got Jesus's way of being like, of agreeing, but, but uh, you know, not saying it himself. Um, this is what he said to Judas when Judas was like, is it I who will betray you, Rabbi? Jesus, you have said so. Um, and then when he goes before Pilate and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Notice again, the Christ, the son of God, the king of the Jews, you have said so. So that's what he tells the high priest. And then he says, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And, uh, recall that, uh, we've talked about where this son of man riding on the clouds of heaven language comes from. This is Daniel 7. This is the human figure who presents himself before God the Father, before the Ancient of Days, and receives 
glory and dominion and a kingdom that will not pass away. That's what is symbolized by the Son of Man riding on the clouds of heaven. And Jesus is telling you, telling him, you're going to see this happen. Of course, with the implication that he himself is the Son of Man. And when the high priest hears this, he hears this as an extreme form of blasphemy. This idea, you're the fulfillment of Daniel 7, Mr. Jesus of Nazareth, no way. And he tears his robe um, and he says he's uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? And notice how politically seditious this is. Uh, we've got him now because now he's claiming to be the one foretold in the scriptures to, to conquer all the other nations of the world and to establish a... Um, a kingdom that will not pass away. That's what he's claiming to do. Let's go tell Pilate that that's what he's claiming to do. Of course, the irony is, is that this is their own scripture. This is something they should be looking forward to. This is something that they should want. But now here it is, and it's a way in which they're not able to maintain their grasp on power, um, and suddenly they're against what they've built their life around, this hope that they've built their life around. Um, and so he asks everybody, you know, what is your judgment? You've heard what he said. And they answered, he deserves death. And they spit on him, they strike him, and they slap him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, you king, who is it that struck you? And uh, Jesus is led away. Uh, tomorrow we'll look at the denial of Peter, but for now, that's it. So um, thank you for joining me, and uh, as always, it's a pleasure to open up the scriptures with you, keep reading, and until, uh, until tomorrow, take care, and God bless you. Bye-bye.